I pray that you will have your Bibles open at the first letter of John so that we may look at the verses we are looking at today. But first let us recap this thesis, this letter was written toward the end of the first Christian century, the late 80s or the early 90s. It was written by the Apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved. It was written to a Christian congregation or congregations, Christian communities that were well known to John. If you read it right through, he refers the many times to my dear children and dear friends. And he also refers to the false prophets in verse 19 of chapter 2 who have defected from us, us. So he counts himself as part of their gathering, part of their community. So he is writing to them. And it has traditionally been thought that these congregations, this community, was located in or around Ephesus. And John wrote the letter. He wrote this letter to those communities and ultimately to us today because of the defection of those false prophets and their followers who had called into question the orthodoxy, the doctrine, the beliefs both teachings and practices of those who have remained faithful and loyal to what goes back to the beginning. And we we know that by looking at the opening words of Genesis, the opening words of the Gospel of John, and the opening words of this letter, we go back to the beginning. In the beginning... God created heaven and earth. In the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And even here in this letter, that which was from the beginning. It is a letter that offers assurance to specific believers back then and to us as believers today. Encouraging them, encouraging us to be loyal, to have loyalty to the Christian faith and the practice of that faith in response to those false teachers, those false prophets who had stirred up trouble and had now left the community. John emphasises one that Jesus who came in the flesh is the Son of God. That Jesus showed his love for us through his incarnation and his crucifixion. And that true believers love one another as God loves them in Christ. This is what we talked about and learnt in our previous two times together. As we talked about a living and loving fellowship. As we talked about a light that gives us light in our lives. Now we come to John's fourth point. 
John's fourth point is that God's children do not habitually sin. But when we do sin, we can receive forgiveness. And that's what we will look at today. And we will also learn that believers, you and I, can have full confidence in the God who loves us and that by trusting in Christ, we can now have eternal life. Let us open with a medley of readings from God's word. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Amen. What promises? But also what convictions? So let us look. And in particular, we will look at verses 5 of chapter 1 to verse 2 of chapter 2. The age-old problem so often wrestled with in people's minds and reflected on at length in the scriptures is the raising of lowly humans into fellowship with the divine. How are the sons of men to become the sons of God? And this is a greater problem than the divine relationship to lower life I mean animals and fish and birds, those sorts of things, because the matter of human will is involved here. The higher the ambition God held for human beings, the greater became the problem introduced by free will. In order to form character in people, God had to take terrible risks. He had to leave people the choice of good or evil. And that was both humanity's great opportunity and humanity's occasion for falling. How did we do? The Bible attributes people's sin, you and me, my sin, our sin, to their willful abuse of their God-given freedom of choosing the basic course and character of their lives. Paul, in writing to those Christians in Rome, outlined the truth concerning humanity's plight as sinners. In those verses we read out, there is none who is 
without knowledge of God, is there? Let us look at three things. Firstly, let us look firstly at the seriousness of sin. And we know what sin is. Sin meant, in the old terms of archery, where you'd missed the mark. You'd missed the bullseye or missed the target altogether. That's what sin was. And so that is what sin is to us. We've missed the mark. We've missed the target that God has set for us. And that is serious. So let us look at the seriousness of sin. And let us firstly look at sin because sin involves the total being of people. Sin involves not just the physical side of people's lives. Sin is more than just a mental condition. Sin is in the heart of people. It is at the very centre of self. And this is what John was fighting against. These early Gnostics, these false prophets, were trying to say otherwise, that sin was just connected to the physical, that it had nothing to do with your soul, nothing to do with your mind. They were trying to corrupt people's thinking so that they could go out and do bad things but come to church on Sunday and all would be well. No. Sin involves not just the physical side of people's lives and not just the mental. Sin is in the heart of people. It is in the heart of you and I. It is at the very centre of self. And let us look at the New Testament's appraisal of sin in people. Sin in the flesh describes living apart from God. So sin keeps us apart from God. You can see references to that in 2 Corinthians 1.17. 2 Corinthians 10.2. Romans 8. The whole chapter virtually. And secondly, sin in your bodies. Sin in your bodies means sin in your personal being. Look at Romans 6 and Romans 12. But there is also sin in the soul. And sin in the soul is referring to oneself or person. That the soul or the person sinning shall die. And that is a warning to the total person. Look at Acts 2.41, Acts 3.23. Sin is serious for it involves the total person. People do not have in themselves the strength to solve their problems. Their whole beings are adversely affected. Sin invades their thinking, their will, their sense of values, their natural responses and their relationships. How come today you'll see on the Oprah show and you'll go into bookshops and you'll see these wonderful books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and such like. 
be a better person in seven days. I've even seen it in our Christian bookshops. A new son or a new wife by Friday. And what a stupid name for a book. People do not have in themselves the strength to solve their problems. Yours and mine. You and me do not have in ourselves the strength to solve our problems. Our whole beings are adversely affected by sin. Sin invades our thinking, our will, our sense of values, our natural responses and it involves our relationships. So that is talking about the seriousness of sin. So let us talk about slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. In people's expression of self-will, they lose their freedom. That's what they call all those sort of books and films and DVDs and things you can buy. Self-help. Self-help videos. Self-help books. As if by picking up and, and following another man's, another man, another person's wonderful hints you can improve yourself and become a great moral person. This is the only self-help book ever made. So, in people's expressions of self-will, they lose their freedom. From trusting God to trusting in self. From obeying God to self-assertion and from serving God to slavery to sin. In sinning, people bring community under the dominion of sin. And don't we all know that? Every time we do something, it's never in isolation, is it? There is a ripple effect. It's like throwing the stone into the lake. The ripples go out. And we don't just end up hurting ourselves. We hurt others. And most times we hurt those that are nearest and dearest to us. In sinning, we bring community under the dominion of sin. Look at Romans 6, 6 and Romans 7, 24. And sin traps people and exercises lordship over them. Again, Romans 6.14, 7.17, Galatians 3.23. Living in these verses is described as serving either good or evil. People act, people's actions, what they do, have repercussions beyond the sensation they momentarily feel. People's acts or actions are testimonies for God or testimonies for Satan. And the constant plea of the New Testament is for people to serve God. Serve God. 
and thus find the liberation for which people were created. Serve God and find the freedom for which humanity was created. When sin is served, mankind's true destiny is denied. Their created role is forfeited. And man falls under the bondage of sin and death. When sin is served, our true destiny is is denied. Our created role is forfeit. And we fall under the bondage of sin and death. So we have talked about the seriousness of sin, slavery to sin. Let's talk about surrender to sin. Because when we surrender to sin, we surrender our sonship to God. Humanity's surrender of sonship to God brings into light their personal responsibility for guilt. The Bible holds people, you and I, each and every one of us, responsible for our own sin. Remember that. Each and every one of us is responsible for our own sin. Sin is not the responsibility of past generations. Look at Deuteronomy 24.16. Ezekiel 18.24. And people are responsible for the actions of the group of which they are a part. Again, you can see the repercussions, the community. We've seen that recently, haven't we, in the city. Those Occupy Melbourne people. Some might have been there with good intentions, but they are all tarred with the same brush. People are responsible. You and I are responsible for the actions of the group for which we belong. Secondly, people are guilty for the environment they help to create. Mind you, we saw that in the city as well, didn't we? What they created there. So they, everybody that was there is guilty for that environment that they were creating. We speak of my country, we speak of my town, we speak of my city, my home. So we're saying we are a part of community. So we are guilty for that environment that we are in. And no person lives to self. Living is influencing others. Because again, we don't live in isolation, do we? People are watching. Others are watching how we behave, what we do. Even if it is our own children, our own brothers and sisters. No person lives to self. We all influence something or somebody else. But be assured of this. People face their sin alone. In the end, people, you and I, will face our sin alone before a just and righteous God. Humanity's problem is sin. 
People may have many problems in life, such as problems in finiteness, problems with fate and function. They may be plagued with involvement in the material aspect of their lives and by their ignorance. But when all is said and done, however, humanity's plight is one of sin. The Bible holds people guilty for their sin. Each one of us, and each one of us alone, stands responsible and in total solitude to face our sin. But to meet this condition, to meet this condition, there came the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel. And when people are willing, when people are willing to admit that sin is their own, and theirs alone, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, will bear it. As Paul told Timothy in his first letter, Christ Jesus came into the world to serve, to save sinners. And we see it here in our last verse. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. Amen to that. Thank God for that assurance. The beginning of the gospel of the good news is that God is light. And we touched on this last time. And this refers to the intellectual and moral perfection of God. God possesses the intellectual perfection of truth and the moral perfection of holiness. And until we understand this, it's hard to appreciate one's need for salvation. But we need salvation. Because one day we will stand before a just and holy God and we will need something more than what we've got, won't we? We will need that assurance that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but for the whole world. There are implications of this and you've all probably read or seen that poem by Rudyard Kipling, If. Well, here's another one I'd like to show you. In these verses here, in verses 6 of chapter 1 to verses 2 of chapter 2, the Apostle John gives us six implications of what this means to us in these verses. And each one of them start with if. So number one, don't claim you are perfect because he says in verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we are lying. We need each one of us, you and I, to let God forgive you. Let God forgive us. In verse seven, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the one another here is referring to God and ourselves as his blood cleanses us from the sins that separate us from him. Thirdly, don't think that just because of your conversion you are kept from temptation. No. 
Because in verse 8, if as Christians we think that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. So we come to number four and we are to confess the sins that mess up our fellowship with God. In verse 9, if as Christians we confess our sins, he cleanses us. Or that way it's said there in our word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. What an assurance. Blessed assurance. Don't try and hide your sin. That's what many of us try to do, don't we? In verse 10, if we hide our sins, we violate God's word, don't we? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. And number six, remember that Christ is always interceding for us. We know this, don't we? That great assurance. He sits at the right hand of God, pleading our case, interceding for us daily, hour upon hour. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. What we conclude from this is that sin brings darkness. But Jesus Christ brings the light back into our lives. Hallelujah. So let's look to our great assurance as we look at the last two verses today. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Let's Grab the insurance, the assurance from this. Well, it is insurance, but grab the assurance from this. Have you ever had trouble forgiving yourself of past regrets, past mistakes, past sin? These verses, these two verses give us a great assurance. Firstly, we start with a great adversary. Our great adversary is sin. If anyone sins, look in verse 1 there. If anybody sins. So we come to our great adventure. So to face that great adversary, we have a great adventure. Victory. Victory. I write this to you so that you will not sin. We have victory in Scripture. And it is possible to have consistent victory over known sin. Sin should not have dominion over us. While we can't be perfect in this life, we can have steadfast and consistent victory through God's word. And that victory comes from our third point, our great advantage. Our great advantage is scripture. Our great advantage to face the great adversary. We use our great advantage. 
scripture. Because he says there, these things I have written to you that you may not sin. And we have our last great A, our great advocate, our great advocate, Jesus Christ. And if anyone sins, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen, hallelujah. The reason we can forgive ourselves of past mistakes and regrets is simply this. God's forgiveness is all-encompassing. It is total. It is eternal. And it is final. The blood of Christ so thoroughly expunges our sins that it's a sin to keep on bringing them up. They're gone. As Eliza Hewitt puts it in her hymn, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We read in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And we've probably sung that a few times as well. Search me, O God. Are you feeling a load of guilt because of some unconfessed sin in your life? Confess it to God right now. Claim his cleansing power. We are dry and barren and unfruitful and out of fellowship with our Lord because we do not confess our sins. God's examinations and his disciplines are painful but necessary. They are necessary for us. Will you acknowledge that truth today? Open up your heart to the searchlight of the word of God. Prayerfully, prayerfully allow the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction in your heart. And as God convicts you of something, confess it to him. Turn from it and receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. Let us pray. Dear Father God, let us keep short accounts with you. Let us come to you daily, not just on Sunday, but Lord, let us come to you daily in our private devotions, in our private prayers and worship, and keep the slate clean, as it were. If we... If, you are made, if your Holy Spirit makes us aware of something we have done, Lord, to wrong another brother, to wrong you, to wrong your creation, please bring it to mind that we may lay it on the table before you so that you may cast it away because we have the assurance, that blessed assurance, that Jesus Christ came and did what I could not do. He lived a perfect life and he took the death that was meant for me. But Lord, through his resurrection, he has won the battle over sin and death. 
And Lord, through my faith, hope and trust in him, I can have eternal life. Lord, let me go from this place and be the witness you want us to be. We pray in his name. Amen.